You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 194 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Michael's Mission, Revealing the Essential Secrets of Human Nature, Twelve Lectures, translated by Johanna Collis. This is the last lecture, Lecture 12, given in Dornach on the 15th of December, 1919. The tasks facing humanity now and in the near future are incisive, significant, and weighty. Powerful courage of soul will be needed to master them. Those who examine these tasks in an endeavor to gain an insight into what is needed by mankind will frequently come up against the superficial facileness with which public, so-called public matters are handled. People waffle on about policies of one sort or another. They base their view of life on a few emotional tidbits, on a few of their own or their country's egoistical views on life, instead of truly yearning to find an actual foundation on which to base a healthy judgment which would be appropriate for the serious situation now prevailing. Over recent months or even years I have been giving lectures here on many aspects of current history and current requirements, always with the aim of furnishing the facts upon which people might base their judgments, though not, of course, in order to present them with finished solutions. What is needed today is the strong desire to gain an ever-increasing understanding of the facts of life in order to build a true foundation for one's judgments. I am obliged to say this, especially because it is obvious that the various statements I have made, also in writing, concerning the social question and the threefold nature of the social organism, have simply been taken too superficially. Far too few questions are asked with reference to the actual principles involved. People nowadays find it so difficult to reach these actual principles because they are, though they would not agree with this, theoreticians with regard to every aspect of life. Those who most strongly imagine themselves to be practically inclined are in fact those who are theoreticians in the strongest sense because they usually settle for a few ideas a few ideas about life and then form judgments about life based on those few ideas. Yet what is needed today is a truly universal and all-embracing examination of life in order to find a practical judgment concerning what is really necessary. It really is an intellectual frivolity to waffle on about policies or fantasize about life, while still lacking an adequate foundation. If only a seriousness about life were to be found in the depths of people's souls. When the other aspect, the practical aspect of our efforts in spiritual science, namely the threefolding of the social organism, is presented to the world, what happens is that our whole way of thinking and working on this threefolding of the social organism is met with prejudice and feelings of intolerance. What is the source of this prejudice and these feelings of intolerance? Well, people form ideas about what is true, I mean with reference to the social life. They form ideas about what is good, what is right, what is useful, and so on. And once they have formed these ideas, they are of the opinion that these ideas have absolute validity for everywhere and forever. Let us take the example of a person from Western or Central Europe who tends toward socialism. His ideas have a specifically socialistic formulation. But 
What are these ideals founded on in their socialistic formulation? The foundation of his ideals is that if they satisfy him, then they must also satisfy everyone else on earth forever and ever, as long as the earth continues to exist. There is little comprehension of the fact that all thoughts about social life must be born out of the underlying character of a time and a place. It thus does not easily occur to people that there must be a variety of nuances in the way one introduces the threefolding of the social organism into our present European culture together with its American companion. Once it has been introduced, the nuances will come about of their own accord, as far as the aspect of place is concerned, namely the location of the various peoples in their regions. And as for the aspect of time, once the ideas put forward entitled Towards Social Renewal have become outdated as human evolution moves forward, then other variations will have to be found. What I have put forward are not absolute ideas, but ideas for the present time and the near future of humanity. In order to comprehend the full necessity of a threefolding of the social organism into an independent life of culture, an independent life of rights and state, and an independent economic life, one will be obliged to examine in an unbiased way how the intermingling of culture, state, and economy has come about in our European-American civilization. This intermingling of the strands, the strand of culture, the strand of rights in the state, and the strand of economic affairs, is not a simple matter. Our culture, our civilization, is an entanglement in which three strands are enmeshed, which have entirely different origins. The origin of our life of spirit and culture is entirely different from the origin of our life of rights and the state, and entirely different again from that of our economic life. And these three currents from different sources are chaotically intermingled. I can today only give you a brief sketch by following these three currents back to their sources. Our cultural and spiritual life, as it is seen today physically and through the senses, is a continuation of ancient Greek and Roman culture, which is now streamed on down to our higher schools and universities. All of our humanistic education right now to our primary schools emanates from what has streamed down to us from the Greek element. See Plate 20. Our European cultural life is, in the first instance, of Greek origin, which has merely passed through the Roman phase. The Roman phase is a phase of transition. Other things, too, have mingled in most recent times with a cultural life stemming from Greece, such things as the technology of various fields, which was not yet attainable by the Greeks, the technology of mechanics, the technology of commerce, and so on. One could say that the technical colleges, the commercial colleges, and so on, have joined our universities, adding more modern elements to the humanistic ways of thinking which hark back to Greece. Such things flow into our souls, and I do not mean only the souls of the so-called educated classes. Today's socialist theories, as they hover in the minds of proletarians, are also nothing other than a derivation of what stems from Greek cultural life. They have merely undergone various metamorphoses. And these cultural elements reach even further back, namely to the Orient. What we find in Plato, what we find in Heraclitus, in Pythagoras, in Empedocles, and especially in Anaxagoras, all this reaches back to the Orient. What we find in Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides reaches back to the Orient. What we find in Phidias reaches back to the Orient. Greek culture itself reaches back to the Orient 
although it underwent significant changes on its way from the Orient to Greece. Over in the Orient, culture was much more spiritual than it was in ancient Greece. In the Orient, it was an emanation from the mysteries of spirit, or one could call them the mysteries of light. Greek cultural life was a filtered, a diluted spiritual life, compared with that of its Oriental origin, which rested on very special spiritual experiences. To describe those spiritual experiences, I should have to characterize them in the following way. We shall have to go back to prehistorical times, since the mysteries of light, or the mysteries of spirit, are most definitely phenomena belonging to prehistory. I shall endeavor to describe to you the character of that spiritual life. As we know, when we go very far back in human evolution, we increasingly reach ancient times when human beings possessed an atavistic clairvoyance, a dreamlike clairvoyance, through which the mysteries of the universe revealed themselves to them. It is perfectly correct to say that human beings lived all over the civilized earth of Asia during the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh centuries before the mystery of Golgotha, and that spiritual truths revealed themselves to those human beings who possessed this clairvoyance which was bound naturally to their blood, to the bodily organs. This was the population who were spread over furthest distances, but their clairvoyance was on the decrease. It was growing ever more decadent. And this descent into decadence of that atavistic clairvoyance is not only a phenomenon of cultural history, for it is at the same time also a phenomenon of the social life of humanity. Why is this so? It is because out of the broad masses of that earthly population, coming from various centers, although chiefly from one center in Asia, there arose a specific kind of human being, a type of human being who possessed special aptitudes. Apart from that atavistic clairvoyance, which they still retained, those human beings also had, in their inmost life of soul, a dreamlike comprehension of the mysteries of the world. And in addition to that dreamlike comprehension, they also possessed, and they were the very first to have this, they also possessed what we now describe as the power of thought. They were the first to have this dawning of intelligence. It was a momentous social happening for those ancient human beings who possessed only the dreamlike view of the mysteries of the world to find arriving in their territories immigrants whom they could not yet understand, because although they also possessed spiritual insights, these were different from their own, namely the power of thought. They were a different type of human being. The Indians regarded the caste, whom they named the Brahmins, as the descendants of those who had united the power of thought with the old atavistic clairvoyance. When those people moved into the more southerly region of the northern highlands of Asia, they were named Aryans. They were the Aryan population. Their basic characteristic was, if I may make use of some later terminology, that they united the plebeian capacity of atavistic clairvoyance with the power of thought. And the mysteries which we call the mysteries of spirit or the mysteries of light were founded by the human beings who were able to combine atavistic clairvoyance with that first kindling of intelligence, that inner light of the human being. And our spiritual development is an adjunct of that early spark of enlightenment, definitely an adjunct. Something of what had been revealed did remain for humanity. But one must take into account that the Greeks, especially the more cultured ones, experienced the dying away of the old gift of atavistic clairvoyance and that what remained was the power of thought. And then the Romans retained solely 
the power of thought. The Greeks still retained an awareness that the power of thought had arisen out of the same source as had the old atavistic clairvoyance. That is why Socrates still experienced something which he named his demon, or daimon, who inspired him, although only with dialectical, intelligent truths. The Greeks also produced significant artistic depictions of the intelligent human being as he rises up out of the rest of humanity. If you study their sculptures, you will notice three strongly differentiated types. There is the Aryan type, as in the head of Apollo, of Pallas Athena, of Zeus, of Hera. If you compare the ears of an Apollo with those of a Mercury head, or the nose of an Apollo with that of a Mercury head, you will see how different the types are. The Greeks wanted to show in the Mercury type how in ancient Greek culture there had been a confluence of intelligence with the ancient past clairvoyance, which was still present as a superstition, as a lower form of culture, on the basis of which the Aryan type had risen up, represented in sculpture by the head of Zeus, by the head of Pallas Athena, and so on. And the lowest of all, the races still possessing the remains of ancient clairvoyance and still living in the periphery of Greece, were represented in sculpture of as yet another type, the satyr type, which was entirely different from the mercury type. Compare the satyr nose with the mercury nose, or satyr ears with mercury ears. The ancient Greeks combined in their art the confluence of what they bore in their consciousness concerning their coming into being. That which gradually emerged in modern times, having gradually filtered through the mysteries of spirit or of light in ancient Greece, possessed some specific cultural and spiritual characteristics. These characteristics were filled with an inner force which enabled them to create the foundation of humanity's life of rites. Out of the revelations from the gods in the mysteries came the external social organism, the theocracies. Everything harks back to the theocracies. And those theocracies were not only capable of bringing into themselves the life of rites, the life of politics out of the mysteries, they were also able to bring order into the economic life out of the spirit. The priests and the mysteries of light were at the same time also the economic, the commercial administrators of their domains. They ruled economically in accordance with the mysteries. They built houses, they built canals, they built bridges, they organized the cultivation of the land, and so on. In primeval times, this is what developed through the spiritual cultural life. But this culture gradually became abstract. Spiritual life became increasingly a sum of ideas. In the Middle Ages, theology became an aggregate of concepts in place of the ancient spiritual life. There was no longer a proper connection with the spiritual life, which thus became abstract, curial. If we look back to the ancient theocracies, we find in the ruler the one who has received his mandate from the gods in the mysteries. His latter-day heir is the western ruler who is no longer recognizable as the heir finally descended from the theocratical ruler who received his mandate from the gods in the mysteries. All that remains now is the crown and the coronation mantle. These are outer insignia, which later became more like metals. If one has an eye for such things, one can still recognize in some aristocratic titles their origin in mystery times. But everything is now externalized. Hardly less superficial is also the culture now in vogue in our schools and universities as the final echo of what were divine communications in the mysteries. 
The spiritual life has flowed into our life, but it is utterly abstract. It is now no more than a life of ideas. It has become what, in the end, is termed in socialist circles an ideology. It is a conglomeration of thoughts which are mere thoughts. This really is what our spiritual life has become. The social chaos of today is what has evolved under the auspices of this spiritual cultural life, which has become so watered down and so abstract that it has lost all its vigor. It is up to us to put this spiritual cultural life back onto its own foundation, for only then will it flourish. We must find our way back from the merely abstract spirit to the creative spirit. And we can only achieve this by endeavoring to develop the cultural life of officialdom once more into the free life of the spirit, which will then once again be alive. Neither the spiritual life patronized by the church nor the spiritual life maintained and protected by the state, nor the spiritual life gasping under the burden of commerce and industry can be fruitful for humanity. Only an independent spiritual life can do this. The time has now come for us to muster the courage in our souls to show the world openly and in freedom that the spiritual cultural life must stand on its own ground. Many people are asking, how can we do this? First of all, it is important that we explain to people what is necessary. We shall have to win as many people as possible who realize the necessity, for example, of providing the spiritual cultural life with its own foundations, and to understand what the pedagogy of the 19th century has become for our schools and universities, namely that it can no longer do any good for humanity unless it is rebuilt out of a free spiritual life. There is as yet little courage in people's souls out of which such truly radical demands can be made. It will only be possible to make these demands if we can win sufficient individuals who understand the situation. All our other social work is purely tentative today. The most important thing is to ensure and to work toward bringing ever more and more individuals to an insight regarding what is socially necessary. One aspect of this being what I have just described. We must seek to enlighten people by every means at our disposal. That is what is important today. We are not yet productive with regard to the spiritual cultural life. We are only in the process of becoming productive in this. There are a few beginnings of which I shall speak in a moment, but we are not yet productive with regard to the spiritual cultural life. We must become productive by means of helping the spiritual cultural life to become independent. Whatever occurs on the earth leaves residues, in today's Oriental culture, in Oriental spiritual life, the mysteries of light are less watered down than they are in the West, although they are by no means what they were in the times I have been describing. Nevertheless, if one looks into these things, one can discover that what the Hindu people still have today, what the Oriental Buddhists have, is much closer to an echo of what we also have in our spiritual life. Only, it has come to a halt at a different stage. But we are not productive. We are highly unproductive. When tidings of the mystery of Golgotha arrived in the West, whence did the Greek and Roman scholars take the concepts with which to comprehend it? They took them from Oriental wisdom. The West did not bring forth Christianity. It stems from the Orient. And something else. When spiritual culture was felt to be rather unfruitful in English-speaking regions, and people were sighing for something more fruitful, the theosophists went to the downtrodden Indians and sought there the source of their modern theosophy. 
They found no fruitful source in their own surroundings by which to improve their spiritual life, and thus turned to the Orient. Apart from this telling fact, you can also find many other instances of the West's unfruitfulness for spiritual life. And every instance of Western unfruitfulness for spiritual life is at the same time an indication of how necessary it is to establish an independent spiritual and cultural life in the threefold social organism. A second strand in the entanglement of streams is that of the life of rights and the state. This is the cudgel in our culture, the second stream. Looked at externally, we observe how the honorable judges sit upon their judgment benches together with the jurors and pronounce judgment on crimes and misdemeanors. Or we observe the civil servants in their bureaucracy presiding over our civilian world to the despair of those who are thus ruled. Everything we speak about under the name of jurisprudence or the state and everything which arises out of this jurisprudence and this state by way of politics, all of it is this stream here. See plate 20. Just as I term this the stream of the spiritual life, so is this the stream of the life of rights of the state. Where does all this come from? This too harks back to mystery cultures. It harks back to the mystery culture of ancient Egypt, which migrated through the southern regions of Europe and then moved through the mundane, unimaginative nature of the Romans. And in this unimaginative nature of the Romans, joined up with a side branch of Oriental nature where it became Catholic Christianity or the Catholic Church. See Plate 20. Put rather drastically, this Catholic Church is in its essence also a kind of jurisprudence. From its various dogmas and right up to that great and mighty judgment portrayed throughout the Middle Ages as the last judgment, it transformed the entirely different spiritual life of the Orient with its Egyptian element of the mysteries of space into what became a society of world judges, pronouncing world judgments and world punishments with sinners and good and bad people. It is indeed a form of jurisprudence. In our entanglement of spiritual streams, to which we give the name of civilization, this is the second element. And it has not linked up with the others in any organic way. That it has not linked up becomes obvious to anyone entering a university to attend, let's say, first a lecture on jurisprudence or constitutional law, and subsequently a theological lecture on perhaps canonical law. These things lie side by side, and they have shaped human thinking and society. Even in later times, where the origins have been forgotten, they still continue to shape people's inner life. The life of rights has made subsequent cultural life more abstract, and in external life it has influenced the shaping of customs and habits and how institutions are set up. And as the spiritual streams of the Orient became more decadent, what was their final social offshoot? It was the feudal aristocracy, see Plate 20. When meeting an aristocrat, one can no longer recognize his origins in Oriental theocratic cultural life, for he has shed all that, and what remains is mere social convention. And as for the intelligentsia of journalism, they sometimes suffer from some form of nightmare. In more recent times, this incubus has invented a curious expression of which they are inordinately proud, quote, cultural aristocracy, close quote. One hears this from time to time. That which passed through the Roman ecclesiastical constitution, through theocratic jurisprudence, and then became worldly in medieval township culture. What is this in its final manifestation? 
It is the bourgeoisie. See plate 20. Thus have these spiritual and cultural forces in their final manifestation become thoroughly jumbled up together. And there is also a third stream connected with all this. Looking in from outside today, where is this third stream especially obvious? For Central Europe there has been a method which demonstrates where these final manifestations of something which was formerly different have been developed. This took place when a man in Central Europe sent his son to a counting house in London or New York to learn the customs of commercial life. In the customs of commercial life, which originated in the commercial procedures of the Anglo-American world, we find the final manifestation of what originated in the mysteries of earth, of which the Druids, for example, represented a specific variation. In the ancient days of Europe's population, the mysteries of earth still retained a specific form in the life of wisdom. That European population, which knew nothing, which was entirely barbaric as regards the revelations of oriental wisdom, the mysteries of space, and then as regards Catholicism, that European population, which was met by Christianity as it spread, possessed a specific form of the life of wisdom, which amounted to an entirely physical form of wisdom. Historically, only the most external customs can still be studied, such as how the festivals were celebrated, out of which the usages and habits of England and America have emerged. The festivals here were related to quite different matters than were those of ancient Egypt where the harvest was connected with the stars. Here the harvest itself was the festival, and the highest festivals of the year were linked with the economic life. In this region the economic life was the foundation. Looking at the spirit of these things as a whole, one notices that coming over from Asia and up from the south, human beings bring a life of culture and a life of rites which they receive from above and then lead down to the earth. But here, in the third stream, the economic life springs up. Its tendrils climb upward in such a way that what was formerly customary in the life of rites and in the life of spirit and culture now becomes purely a matter of the economic life. This developed to such an extreme that, for example, the insemination of the herds was a special annual celebration in honor of the gods. And there were other such festivals as well, all based on the economic life. If we go to regions in northern Russia, in central Russia, Sweden, Norway, or to regions which until recently were a part of Germany, or to France, at least northern France, and to what is today Great Britain, If we go to all these regions, we find that even before Christianity spread to them, they had a clearly pronounced form of economic culture. And whatever of the old customs still exists in the festivals of the rites life, or in the festivals for the gods, all this is an echo of that ancient economic culture. This economic culture encounters what comes from the other side. To begin with, this economic culture failed to develop an independent life of rights or of culture. The original customs of the life of rights were discarded because Roman law had flowed in. And the original customs of the life of culture were discarded because Greek culture had flowed in. Initially, This economic life is sterile, but it gradually works its way up, although this is only possible by overcoming the chaos arising from the alien life of culture and rights. Take today's Anglo-American cultural life. This Anglo-American cultural life contains two elements which are starkly differentiated. Firstly, there exists in the Anglo-American cultural life more than elsewhere on the earth, the so-called secret societies which are fairly influential, 
indeed much more so than is realized. They do certainly preserve ancient cultural life. They are proud of preserving Egyptian or Oriental culture, which has become diluted to such an extent that it is now no more than a symbol. Those symbols are no longer understood. But in the upper echelons they carry a certain weight. But this is the old spiritual, cultural life which has not grown up on home soil. And then, on the other hand, there is a spiritual, cultural life which has grown up on the soil of the economic life, but which as yet has only the tiniest flowering. It blooms with the tiniest flowers on the soil of the economic life. And there's a diagram. Those who study and understand these things know full well that Locke, Hume, Mill, Spencer, Darwin, and others are these small flowers emerging from the economic life. The ideas of someone like Mill or Spencer can easily be derived from economic life. Social democracy then raised them up to be a theory while regarding the spiritual cultural life as a manifestation of economic life. All this is initially present. All of it is derived from so-called practical life or rather from life's routines, not from true practical life. They all travel along side by side. Darwinism, Spencerism, Millism, Humeism, together with the watered-down mystery teachings carried on by sectarian developments, the Theosophical Society, the Quakers, and so on. The economic life which is seeking to develop has thus far grown only small blooms. It has not yet traveled far. Spiritual, cultural life as such, the life of rites as such, these are unfamiliar plants. And please note, they are all the more unfamiliar the further one travels westward in European civilization. In Central Europe, on the other hand, there has always been some kind of what I would call a reaction, a struggle against whatever was Greek spiritual cultural life on the one hand and the Roman Catholic life of rites on the other. There's always been a degree of rebellion here. One example of this rebellion has been the philosophy of Central Europe. In England, nothing is really known about Central European philosophy. Hegel cannot really be translated into English. It's not possible. Nothing is known of what he has to say. In England, people talk of German philosophy as Germanism, meaning something with which sensible people do not concern themselves. Especially in German philosophy, however, with the exception of one episode, when Kant was thoroughly ruined by Hume, so that this horrible Kant-Hume element was brought into German philosophy, where it really wreaked havoc in Central European heads. With the exception of this one episode, there is always a follow-on flowering after the rebellion, especially in Fichte, Schelling, Hegel, and Goethe too, who wanted to allow nothing of that final echo of Roman Catholic jurisprudence to enter into the laws of what we call natural science, was searching for a free spiritual life. In that shabby gown and the peculiar headdresses from olden times which judges still wear, they are now petitioning to do away with them, you can also sense as in natural science and in natural law, the law, which still exists in jurisprudence. The very expression natural law is meaningless for Goethe's natural science, which is concerned solely with the archetypal phenomenon, the archetypal fact. Here we have the beginning of the battle, but of course everything is as yet only at the very beginning, the first foray toward a free spiritual science, Goethean natural science. And here, in Central Europe, we also have the initial foray toward an independent life of rights in the state. Read Wilhelm von Humboldt's essay. That man is even a Prussian minister for education. Read his essay. It used to cost only 20 pfennigs in the Reclam edition. 
Read that essay on Endeavors to Determine the Limits of State Competency. If you do, you will be encountering the first attempt to bring about an independent life of rights and the state, an independent political life. Unfortunately, the endeavor never progressed beyond that initial point, which lies back in the first half of the 19th century, or even the end of the 18th century. Nevertheless, one must bear in mind that important impulses did exist in Central Europe, which pointed in that direction, impulses which could be taken as a starting point and should not remain untested, for they may be able to lead on toward the impulse for a threefold social organism. In one of his first books, Nietzsche wrote the words I quoted on the first page of my book about him, words which hint at the tragedy of German spiritual and cultural life. He was endeavoring in his essay about David Strauss to characterize the events of 1870-71, the founding of the German Reich, with the words, quote, extirpation of the German spirit in favor of the German Reich, close quote. Since then, the throat of the German spirit has been well and truly severed. And since, over the last five to six years, three-quarters of the world have been attacking the Germany of that time, I don't want to go into detail here about the causes or the perpetrators. The configuration, the global situation, is what is relevant. It was even then already the corpse of the German spiritual and cultural life. Yesterday I described some facts impartially, so I hope you did not understand me to mean that there is not still a great deal which is present in this German spiritual and cultural life which must be taken into account, and needs to be taken into account, despite the country's future gypsy-like characteristics. For what was it, basically, which led to the downfall of the Germans? This question, too, calls for an impartial answer. The downfall of the Germans was brought about by the way in which they wanted to share in materialism without having any talent for materialism. Hermann Grimm once gave an excellent description of a German characteristic when he said, On the whole, the Germans hold back when it would be better for them to stride ahead, and they rush terribly ahead when it would be better for them to hold back. This is a very good description of one inner characteristic of the German people. Throughout the centuries, the Germans have had great energy while lacking the ability to keep going with this energy. Goethe was able to present the original phenomenon without being able to reach back to the beginnings of spiritual and cultural science. He was able to develop great cultural force, for example, in his title Faust or in his title Wilhelm Meister, which would have been capable of revolutionizing the world if he had gone about it in the right way. But instead of this, the external personality of this genius managed merely to grow fat and develop a double chin in Weimar, to become a corpulent privy councillor, who was also an extremely industrious minister, while at the same time being no great shakes in political life. It really would be important in the world to realize that such phenomena as Goethe and Humboldt everywhere represent starting points, and that it really would be to the detriment of the world if it were unable to take hold of what lives within German evolution, which has by no means yet been developed in the way it should be. German people lack something which others have built up to excess the further westward one goes, and that is the inclination to ascend to the very limits of abstraction. The fact that others talk of the Germans having abstractions, in quotes, in their spiritual and cultural life, stems from an inability to experience the truth, and also from the way those others have squeezed out the living element themselves and are thus unable to experience it. But the Germans are not given to pressing forward to the final limits of abstraction. This was demonstrated specifically in their political life. In that, 
most unfortunate of all political lives. If they had from the beginning had the talent for monarchism, which the French have retained so brilliantly right up to the present time, they would never have become so fatally attracted to Wilhelmism. They would not have needed to set up or maintain that peculiar caricature of a monarch. Although the French refer to themselves as Republicans, they have in their midst a secret monarch who holds the state together and keeps a tight rein on people's feelings. Strictly speaking, the spirit of Louis Fourteenth is present everywhere. It is now decadent, surely, but it exists nonetheless. There is indeed still a secret monarch among the people of France, and it shows in all their cultural manifestations. And the talent for abstraction which showed itself in Woodrow Wilson is that talent at its most extreme in external political life. Those fourteen points promulgated by the world's schoolmaster which bear the imprint of everything impractical and unenforceable in every word can only have sprung from a mind utterly given over to the abstract and entirely lacking in any sense for reality. There will surely one day be two things which the future history of culture will have difficulty in comprehending. I have often characterized the one for you in the words of Hermann Grimm, and that is the Kant-Laplace theory, which some people still believe in today. Hermann Grimm put it beautifully in his title Goethe. The day will come when that sickness, which people nowadays call science, will cease to be believable, namely its description of everything we have around us today, having arisen out of an archetypal fog. And this is supposed to continue until everything once more reverts back into the sun. Really, a rotting bone circled by a hungry dog is a more appetizing idea than this fantasy of how the world came into being. So said Hermann Grimm. Of course, the time will come when the scientific madness of the 19th and 20th centuries will have great difficulty in explaining this Kant-Laplace theory. The second difficult fact to be explained will be the unbelievable point of there once having been a great many individuals who took seriously the humbug of Woodrow Wilson's fourteen points at a time which was socially in such difficulties. When we look more closely at what goes on side by side in the world, we find the economic life, the political life of rights, and the spiritual cultural life all entangled with one another. If we want to avoid perishing beneath the utterly degenerate spiritual life and life of rights, we shall have to turn toward the threefold social organism, which builds up the economic life out of independent roots, the economic life which wants to come about, but which cannot come up if there is no life of rights and no spiritual cultural life which can come toward it in freedom. These things have deep roots in the whole of human evolution and in human social life. We shall have to search for these roots. People must today be made aware of the fact that down there, down on the ground, the economic life is creeping along, interwoven with Anglo-American habits of thought, and that it will only be able to send tendrils upward if it works in harmony with the whole world, with whatever capabilities others have. Otherwise the attainment of world domination will be its doom. If the world continues along its current path, together with the degenerating spiritual life coming over from the Orient, then this spiritual life, having been at one end the loftiest truth, will hurtle at the other end into the most frightful mendacity. Nietzsche was obliged to describe how already the Greeks had to safeguard themselves against the mendacity of life by means of their art. Art is indeed ultimately the child of the gods, which saves humanity from descending into mendacity. 
But if this first strand of culture is pursued one-sidedly, it leads into mendacity. During the past five to six years, there has been more lying within civilized society than in the whole of human history. Almost no truth at all has been spoken in public life. Hardly a single sentence heard worldwide has been true. Whereas this stream leads into mendacity, this middle stream leads into self-interest. And as for an economic life, such as that now present in England and America, which ought to become worldwide, if it does not bother to allow itself to be filled with the independent spiritual cultural life and with the independent life of rights, it will lead into the third abyss of human life, into the third of those three. The first abyss is mendacity, the degeneration of humanity through Araman. The second is self-interest, the degeneration of humanity through Lucifer. And the third is sickness and death in the physical realm, and the sickness of culture and the death of culture in the cultural realm. The Anglo-American world may well attain global dominance, but without threefolding, this global dominance will flood the world with cultural death and cultural sickness. These are the gift of the Azuras, just as mendacity is a gift of Araman and self-interest is a gift of Lucifer. Thus that third gift, fittingly, taking its place at the side of the other two, is the gift of the Azuras. From all this, we should gain enthusiasm, which will fire us up to search diligently now for ways of explaining to as many people as possible what is going on. It is the duty of those who understand these matters to explain them to others. We must do whatever we can to counteract that folly which regards itself as wisdom and as having achieved so much. We must present that folly with the practical aspect of anthroposophical spiritual science. If I have succeeded in awakening in you the feeling of how profoundly seriously these things must be regarded, then perhaps I have achieved something of my intention in speaking to you here. When we meet again in a few weeks' time, we shall continue to speak about these things. Today it was my intention to evoke in you a feeling of how the most important social task we now have is to enlighten others in the widest circles. And that is the end of Lecture 12 and the end of the book, Collected Works, Volume 194 by Rudolf Steiner, Michael's Mission, Revealing the Essential Secrets of Human Nature, translated by Johanna Kallis.